You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast. www.savagelovecast.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual harmony, well, there's nothing you can't ask on the Savage Lovecast. Mike Pence, man. When is that dude ever not trying to tell us who he really is? I mean, there was this. Spend more time on your knees than on the internet. And last week, Pence was all over our meat. Senator Kamala Harris said she would change the dietary guidelines of this country to reduce the amount of red meat Americans can eat. Well, I've got some red meat for you. We're not going to let Joe Biden and Kamala Harris cut America's meat. So, three years after moving to Washington, D.C., Mike Pence feels the same way about meat that I did three months after moving to West Berlin. Don't cut the meat. Me and Mike, we like our meat uncut and unlimited. And quickly, Harris was calling for better dietary guidelines like health suggestions from the government about food consumption. Remember food pyramids from grade school? And we've always been free to disregard those guidelines. So if Joe Biden and Kamala Harris win the election, please, God, we will still be free to disregard them. So no one is coming for Mike Pence's meat. That said, listening to Pence go on and on about how he likes his meat, there's always a tell with these public and political homophobes. It just leaks out of them. And I don't mean the bigotry. That flies out of them. I mean the truth. It used to be that if a guy didn't want anyone to think he was gay, all he had to do was not have feelings and not audition for the high school musical and not let himself get too excited about anything other than sports. A guy also couldn't admit to having sensation in his nipples or ever let someone touch his ass. Hell, I'm old enough to remember when men, straight men, thought there was something kind of gay about guys who eat pussy. The idea being a dude who'll suck on a clit will suck on anything. Anyway, in our modern world, the world Mike Pence doesn't live in, it's a lot easier for a guy who isn't gay not to be perceived as gay. Christ, these days a straight guy can have feelings and like musicals and get pegged without people thinking he's gay, so long as he's not a homophobe. Because that's the tell these days. That is the modern tell. So even more revealing than Mike Pence's creepy-ass gay face, even more revealing than the places Mike Pence's mind goes when he's giving a speech or doing an interview, that man wants meat, a lot of it, and like 25-year-old Dan, he wants it uncut, even more revealing than all of that is Mike Pence's record. He opposed gay marriage in Congress in 2000 and backed an amendment to the U.S. Constitution banning same-sex marriage. Now, in fairness, a lot of Americans opposed gay marriage back then. But a supermajority of Americans support gay marriage now. They've come around. Pence hasn't. Pence sought to deny funds to HIV AIDS prevention orgs that talked about gay sex and suggested that that money might be better spent talking gay people out of being gay. He voted against the Employment Non-Discrimination Act when he was in Congress. And when he was governor of Indiana, he signed a disastrous religious freedom law that legalized anti-LGBT discrimination in that state. So long as the bigot doing the discriminating remembered to say the magic word, Jesus. He's had a hand in every anti-gay and anti-trans policy pushed by the Trump administration. And Pence's wife teaches at a private grade school in Virginia that expels gay kids and fires gay teachers. 
more than anything Pence has ever said, more than any creepy fucking weird thing that's ever come out of Pence's mouth or gone into Pence's mouth. It's his record that makes him sound gay. Just another closeted gay man externalizing his internal conflict and working to make the world a more hostile place for out gay people so that he's never tempted to come out himself. The evidence isn't always anecdotal, but there is a lot of that. I could list all of the anti-gay politicians and preachers who've been caught with dicks in their mouths, but it would take the whole show. So I'll just share a recent favorite example. The not-so-right Reverend Dr. William Weaver of Linden, New Jersey, who was giving blowjobs to male parishioners who approached him for spiritual counseling. He told them he was using an ancient Native American technique to suck the demons out of them by blowing them during exorcisms. The best that can be said about Reverend Weaver's demon removal technique is that in the average man, the demon comes back in anywhere between 15 minutes and a few hours so you can get busy casting that demon out again. But there's not just anecdote. There's actual data. Multiple studies have shown that homophobes are aroused by gay porn. Show them gay porn and blood flows right into their dicks. Show them gay and straight porn side by side and eye tracking measurements show they look longer, longer and harder at the gay porn than the straight porn. So Mike Pence is using an outdated strategy. If you really don't want people to think you're gay, Mike, don't be like Mike. And speaking of meat, all that meat Trump and Pence wants you to eat, like Mike Pence himself, you might want to think twice before you put it in your mouth. The Trump-Pence administration, using the pandemic as an excuse, is now allowing diseased chickens to be processed for human consumption. Chickens infected with something called avian leukosis, a virus that causes chickens to develop lesions and cancerous tumors, can now be slaughtered and sold to you. While it's unlikely that the virus could transfer from chickens to humans, it's not impossible, Bloomberg News reports. And there is evidence that workers exposed to birds infected with the disease in the UK have developed antibodies indicating a transfer of the virus from animal to human. The pandemic we're all in now... It got started when a virus made the leap from animals to humans. So, yeah, they are really trying to kill us all. And they're not hiding that fact any better than Mike Pence is hiding his thing for meat. All right, coming up on today's show on the micro edition of the Savage Lovecast, tons of your cues, lots of my A's. And joining us on the Magnum, Dr. David Lay returns to talk about sex addictions and kinks and how we can tell the difference, all that coming up on today's show. Hi, Dan. I am a cis pansexual woman calling in from the islands about a COVID success story. I had an experience of going on a much anticipated second date with a gentleman that I have been uh, wanting to pursue for some time now. We, our first date went really well and we'd been chatting online and sort of building up tension for a while. So we made a plan to meet at the beach at dusk when we knew no one else would be there and disrobed in front of each other to nothing. We decided we would be brave enough to go skinny dipping and oof, the tension. Wow. <laughs> but we put on our, our snorkeling gear and we got into the water and explored a little bit. And in our exploring and looking at fish, 
we started to oogle each other, which ended up in touching each other in the water with our masks and snorkels and fins on. <laughs> but it became very heated and so much more erotic than anticipated where we eventually were just upright, holding and caressing each other in the water where I could feel him get rock hard and he was exploring me, seeing how wet I was getting. Um, we hadn't had the conversation of penetration yet, so that did not happen, but we were on the brink of it. And oh my God, let me tell you, <laughs> it was so exciting. So much eye contact and we could hear each other breathing like we were mask to mask in the, <laughs> the, the water. We made our way back to shore and put our clothes back on and returned home and gushed to each other about how sexy the experience had been. Wow. Highly recommend naked snorkeling. Thank you for calling in and sharing what has to be the best mask for mask story we've heard around here in a while. You know, COVID is doing terrible things all over the world. So many millions of people have been sick and so many people have died one of the things that it seems to have brought back for a lot of people is anticipation, denial and anticipation. The uh, guys out there into male chastity devices could have told us about that pre-COVID, but more and more of us are getting to experience really the payoff, the benefit of that buildup of erotic tension. What could have been more erotic than your second date. All right, if you want to share a sex success story, a quarantine sex success story for us to share at the top of next week's show, give us a buzz. Hey, Dan and Nancy and everyone. We're two ladies in a relationship. I'm bi slash hetero flexible, and she's definitely a lesbian. So many of your listeners have called out the distinction between being a lesbian, somebody that only dates women and being something else like on the bi spectrum, which is where I find myself. Can you call our relationship a lesbian relationship or are we just two ladies that like to fuck and be in love? Will you call a relationship if it's not a lesbian relationship? You call it a same sex relationship. When you've got two women in a same sex relationship, it might be a lesbian relationship might not be a lesbian relationship. One partner could be bi. Both partners could be bi. That said, when you ask, can you call our relationship a lesbian relationship? Well, I can't call it a lesbian relationship. I would call it a same-sex relationship. But you can call it a lesbian relationship if that's the label you feel is most accurate, the one you're most comfortable with. I'm not saying this is the case here with you, caller, because you identify as bi and heteroflexible on that spectrum. But there are a lot of lesbian-identified bisexual women out there. And they're not lying. You know, sexual identity is complicated and the labels don't always fit neatly. I've always compared it to a kind of a layer cake. The bottom layer is what you want to do. The middle layer is what you are doing. And the top layer is what you tell people. And sometimes people are bisexual, but all of their partners are same or opposite sex. And they are more comfortable identifying as lesbian or gay or straight because the sort of 
totality of their sexual expression and the way they wish to be identified and understood rounds up to gay or lesbian or rounds down to straight. And those identities, those rounded up or rounded down identities are perfectly legitimate, perfectly valid to use the internet-ism of the moment. It's complicated. It's complicating. You know, you meet somebody and they tell you they're a lesbian. You find out that they sometimes sleep with guys. Were you lied to? No, not necessarily. If they are homo-romantic and only in relationships with women, only fall in love with women, occasionally want to bang a dude, well, in the rounding up process, it would seem that lesbian most accurately captures their sexual expression, sexual orientation, sexual identity, and really allegiance. And it's perfectly valid. So I wouldn't call your relationship a lesbian relationship unless I knew you both to be lesbians, and then I might call it a lesbian relationship. But absent that information, I would call it a same-sex relationship, which you are also free to call it. Hi, Dan. I am unfortunately calling in with a wedding question. I am a cisgender woman living on the East Coast. My sister in Texas is still planning on having her 100-person wedding in October. She thinks, and generally the rest of my family thinks, that the wedding can be held in a way that is socially distant and as safe as possible. Me and my uh, oldest sister, who actually lives on the East Coast near me, we just really disagree. Um, We're angry and we're scared and we're just sad. We've tried giving her every argument that we can muster for why she should simply postpone the wedding. None of the arguments are really resonating. Um, the one point that did catch her attention was the idea that our grandparents might literally die if they catch COVID at her wedding. And so now she has a new plan. She's going to have a smaller ceremony with the grandparents and just a few other folks. And then after that ceremony, grandparents can leave, immunocompromised folks can leave. And I guess, you know, the fucking liberals in the family can leave. And then she'll bring in a hundred people for the reception And this to me feels like, you know, a big whoop. But I can't stop thinking about a hypothetical where it's only the ceremony and it's only 10 to 15 people all masked up, all socially distant, you know, there for her vows. Um, Because if that were the case, I think I would and I think my sister on the East Coast with me would feel comfortable taking a test and then, you know, driving strategically down to Texas, quarantining for two weeks, attending the ceremony, quarantining for two weeks in Texas, taking a test and then driving back up. And I know my sister's partner would be able to join her for that. My husband won't, but I still think it'd be worth it because the sister who's getting married is, or I guess has been my best friend for, you know, lifelong best friend up until the last two months. Um, She was in my wedding. I was in her wedding. And it just, it makes me so sad to think of not being there. But I also have to remind myself that this is a hypothetical and that the ceremony will be followed by a reception where she hopes 100 people will attend. And that this reception will not only maybe harm my family, but maybe harm strangers and and maybe kill strangers who have the misfortune of interacting with my family. Um, So I guess my question for you is, is it okay to attend the ceremony and skip out on the reception? I think your answer should probably be no. I think it will be no, but uh, I don't know. I guess I just want your input. Skip them both. Don't go to the ceremony. Don't go to the reception. You aren't obligated to turn up at your sister's ill-advised Dexter-esque homicidal fucking wedding. She can have a wedding during a pandemic and anybody who's fool enough to go is going to have to shoulder the risk of going. And you can tell your sister that 
considering the drive you would have to make, the quarantine time you'd have to spend, that it's just not possible for you to attend her wedding at this moment and impress upon her that it would be dangerous for her to, you know, send invitations to grandparents who may not be able to resist the emotional blackmail or the emotional appeal of going to their granddaughter's wedding as potentially their last act. And as we learn more about COVID, we learn more and more about how insidious it is and about its knock-on effects for the survivors. It seems like for some people, there is long-term heart damage from surviving a COVID infection, long-term potential brain damage from surviving a COVID infection. We need to err on the side of risking less here, not saying, oh, because it's primarily older people who die of this, we can pack our kids into schools and our friends into wedding receptions. No, 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 no. Don't go and tell your sister why you're not coming and send a fucking broken toaster. I'm going to open my broken toaster shop. It's where people get wedding presents for people who shouldn't be getting married or getting married in incredibly shitty, manipulative, ass, holy ways. Send them a fucking broken toaster. It's what your sister deserves. I'm a 26-year-old trans gay guy, and for about a year, I've been in a long-distance relationship with an almost 55-year-old uh, cis gay dude. And I love him a lot. I mean, we're like we're like best friends, uh, no question there. But the, the problem is that I've realized that we have no future together, and this is something that we've acknowledged to each other. And I don't know what to do with that. I don't know how to. I don't know how to keep doing this for about as long as I've known him. And, and we talked on Scruff for like two years before we met. So it's been about three years knowing each other. And during that time, he's been um, in the middle of a divorce from his ex-husband. And, and they were together for for longer than I've been alive. So obviously, there's there's a lot that I don't you know can't don't understand. Um, and I accept that. But my boyfriend is like not always very excited about our relationship uh, because of that. You know, he's sometimes said that he's open to a to a new long-term thing, you know, like, like with us. Um, and other times he said that, you know, he doesn't believe in that anymore. And, you know, he's he's very resentful and, and cynical about it. And I, I really want a relationship with somebody that is long-term and that is earnest about that um, and is excited for those milestones and things like that. And I don't, I don't think that's going to be with him, and I don't think it's fair to to try to to try to make it be with him because it's it's obviously not what he's into right now. We also just have very different communication styles, and there's the issue of we don't live in the same place. We live about four hours apart right now, and I actually really want to move back to Chicago where I used to live. I work in theater, so that's like a high priority for me to get back there, and um, that would make us multiple states away with like no plan to be in the same city um, anytime soon. And, and I just don't see it happening realistically. Um, I don't see us being in the same place. So um, that makes the idea of a long-term relationship really basically impossible, I think. And, and we've talked about it till we're blue in the face of like how to make this work. And, and we, don't, we don't know. It's not a secret. Like I, I make him talk about stuff and fuck, he listens to this show. One of the first things we ever bonded over was the fact we're both like disciples of the love cast. But we don't know what to do. The, the best we can come up with is to sort of downshift from being boyfriends to some kind of like kind of solo poly thing where, where we're going to continue to be in love and to, to fuck when we can, but also, you know, be free to, to look at other relationships um, with guys that maybe we are, you know, more compatible with long term. But is that is that just like trying to, to say, oh, we're going to break up, but stay friends immediately? Like, is that just like a bad idea that won't work? 
I've tried Googling it and I really can't find an example of anyone that's intentionally um, downshifted their relationship in this way. And I don't know how to make this work. It's not just circumstance that's pulling you two apart. And I think if it was just circumstance, you know, you wanted to move to Chicago or needed to move to Chicago and he needs to stay put in the state where he's at. And he's, you're going to go from a four hour drive to multiple States away at a time in all of our lives where traveling isn't easy. If it was just circumstance pulling you apart. Yeah. Maybe you could look into solo polyamory. Maybe you could be in a loving, committed relationship with this person you very rarely see and have other committed concurrent romantic relationships with people who are more available to you, but everything else you unpack in addition to the circumstance question and the geographical question just screams that you are emotionally incompatible. And it's not about the age difference. You are very different people and you're very different stages of your life as well, but you are not a match emotionally in a way that would facilitate having a long-term committed romantic relationship. You love him. You've known him for three years. You've been in a relationship with him for a year. And so there's definitely something there. You connect with him. Maybe you've been able to provide him with uh, emotional support during his divorce, which must be incredibly traumatic after all those years together with his ex-husband. And he's provided you with emotional support. And maybe you guys, when you have gotten together, really connected sexually, and besides the sort of cynicism and your ambivalence about the relationship, there isn't a terrible conflict that, that, that burns it all to the ground. And often in the absence of, you know, anger or rage or some need to, you know, in your own head, tear it all down because you've been failed or abused or betrayed in some way by, you know, your boyfriend or the person that you're with, it can be hard for people to end a relationship that just kind of needs to end because as much as you know the ways in which you do connect emotionally patch over the ways in which you don't connect connect emotionally and the way circumstance and geography are pulling you apart there's no animosity there there's no uh, causes bella i'm sure i'm mispronouncing that everyone will call in and tell me how to pronounce that correctly there's no central issue conflict betrayal that in your head justifies ending the relationship Everything else that you've described, though, are all perfectly legitimate and good reasons to end the relationship. And ending the relationship, you know, the romantic relationship, the official designation as boyfriends, doesn't mean you have to exit each other's lives. You can stay friends. You can stay connected. It is one of the gay superpowers that often our very closest friends are exes, ex-boyfriends, ex-husbands even. Not that that's going to happen for your boyfriend, soon to be ex-boyfriend and his ex-husband. But a lot of us seem to be able to keep people in our lives without our current or future partners objecting to those people remaining in our lives that we used to have romantic connections with, that we used to be in relationships with. You two can stick that dismount. There's plenty of examples, I'm sure, if you look around in your life of men you know who are friends with their exes and their exes still love and support them, even if they're not still in love with them and their sole means of support. Hey, um, I am a cisgender female from North Carolina, straight female. Um, I'm calling in because I started talking to a guy during quarantine. We started to date after like f three months of talking um, and hanging out. Things were going good. We were having good sex. 
really good sex until about a week ago. Um, and then there were a couple times where we would have sex like three times in a row. He like kind of stopped mid sex and just like kind of made up weird excuses being hot, like just not really wanting to continue. I brought it up. He said basically that he had trouble separating like people that he cared about from having sex and basically straight up said, uh, the people that I want to fuck, I don't want to date, but the people that I want to date, I don't want to fuck. So that made me feel obviously very weird. Didn't have sex till he was 20, which again is kind of maybe underlying. I don't know. Then I was like telling my friends about this and one of my girlfriends listens to your podcast regularly and told me about the Madonna horror complex. And I'm like, oh my God, he fucking has this. What the fuck does that mean? I just am kind of like, do I stay with him? Do I deal with this? Is this something that people can actually get over? I'm about to start this big time job where I'm going to work a hundred hours a week. I like don't have a ton of time to work on a relationship so I'm, it's even more stressing about all of this. Two weeks ago, I thought he was like the one. And now that all the sex stuff has come about, I'm like not, I've been a lot less attracted to him. I feel like a lot of ins- insecurities have come out. I just, I don't really know where to go from this. You don't have the time to work on this guy. You don't have the responsibility or obligation to work on him either. This isn't work you have to do. This is work that he needs to do if indeed he ever wants to have a long-term committed relationship with someone that he enjoys having sex with and can have a sexual relationship with going forward. There are definitely people out there who have this issue, who can't fuck someone they're in a relationship with and can't be in a relationship with someone they're fucking. Often it's Madonna whore. Sex is this terrible, dirty thing, and I can't do this with someone I love and respect because then I'm doing this terrible, dirty thing to them. So I have to seek out people I don't love, don't respect, and do these terrible, dirty things with them. It's not always the case that it's as pronounced or shitty as that description makes it sound. Some people just have a kind of libido-ish disconnect where sex with somebody that they know, the more they get to know someone, the less interested they are in them sexually. This is something that often plays out in long-term relationships where you know a couple that's together for years, years, decades, decades begins to be so familiar with each other. The relationship starts to feel less like, you know, the erotic other, those gaps that you have to bridge, that, that mystery that fuels Eros and more like a, a sibling relationship. And some people just get into that sibling place in a matter of months instead of a matter of years. And it's not about only being able to function sexually with someone that they fundamentally disrespect or hold in contempt. That's where Madonna Whore gets really ugly when someone can only, you know, it's almost always a guy, get aroused, get hard if he's having sex with someone, not just that he doesn't know, but someone that he holds in contempt, someone that disgusts him, someone that he looks down on and treats consequently usually very disrespectfully. If he has those sorts of issues, if it's as toxic as that, it's not on you. Some woman he met a few months ago and fucked around with once or twice to solve that, to fix him. You ain't chemo. You can't cure this cancer. If he's interested in ever having a long-term committed relationship with someone that he can be sexual with, he needs to go do that work. He needs 
to fix that. And if he can't fix that, well, he needs to find someone if he wants to, a partnership who isn't interested in him sexually or also isn't interested in having sex with their primary partner, their committed partner. And those couples are out there. Two people are together. It's a good, low-conflict, loving, intimate, companionate relationship. They don't have sex with each other for reasons, sometimes this reason, often other reasons, but they do have active sex lives with other people, and it's a form of consensual non-monogamy that can work. Maybe that's what he needs to run off and do, but whatever he needs to go do, he is not your responsibility. Hi, Dan. 27-year-old gay male calling in from the East Coast. Wanted to get your advice regarding an uncomfortable first-time virtual doctor's appointment that I had the other day. For a little background, I'm in a monogamous relationship with my boyfriend of a little over a year. After noticing some bumps and stinging on my asshole over the past couple of weeks, I decided I wanted to be seen by a doctor to better understand what was going on and to receive treatment. My boyfriend recommended me to his proctologist, who he has been seeing for over two years, and I proceeded to make an appointment. However, when I called the practice, I was notified that as a first-time patient, before I could have an in-person appointment due to COVID, I would first have to have a video appointment with the head of the practice, opposed to the doctor my boyfriend had been seeing. Understanding the situation, I scheduled the video session with the head of the practice. During onboarding with the receptionist, I inquired if I would have to show my genital area on camera and instead inquired if I could take photos of the area ahead of time, which I assumed would be far clearer than anything my computer camera would capture. The receptionist confirmed that was totally okay, and I felt a bit more at ease. Fast forward to this Monday, the day of my video appointment. Prior to my call, my boyfriend took photos of the irritation, and I sent them over to the doctor so he could review over the call. However, when the call began, I was greeted by the doctor, who turned out to be an older gentleman, who was not in his office, but rather in what appeared to be the backyard of his house, which I was a little perplexed by. He was jovial in his manner and asked me about myself and my work history. I think it's also important to mention that from our back and forth, he made it pretty clear to me that he was also gay. The call continued, and after some routine questions regarding my sexual history, I was asked to lift up my shirt and take a series of deep breaths for the doctor. Despite being a little uncomfortable, I proceeded and was then advised to pull down my pants and underwear and show all angles of my penis and balls to the doctor. Even more uncomfortable now, I hesitated, but after a few seconds, then proceeded to show the requested area. After this, the doctor then asked if I could show the anal area over the computer camera. I mentioned the high-quality photos that I had taken and how I didn't understand why it was necessary to show him that area of my body when he had such clear images, which I thought demonstrated the problem. I was then told that my hole wasn't open enough in the photos and that I should stick my fingers on my anus and pull it apart on the camera so the doctor could better see what was going on. I hesitated at this point, unsure of how to proceed, and then advised the doctor that I didn't think my computer camera would show what he needed to see, and I also didn't know how to angle my body on the camera to see what was required. He assured me any angle would be fine, and that he definitely needed to see the area over the camera as close as possible. And not knowing what to say or how to say no to him, I proceeded to bend over and part my ass cheeks on the camera, getting as close as I could to the camera. Thoroughly embarrassed at this point, the doctor then told me I did a great job and that he saw what he needed to see. He then diagnosed me with anal warts relating to what he thought was HPV and suggested I come to his practice for in-person treatment. What do I do, Dan? Am I totally overreacting here or do you think I have a right to feel unsettled and even a little violated by the whole thing? I have my follow-up appointment with him this coming Wednesday scheduled and I don't know whether to cancel 
and see another doctor or to go through the appointment. Any advice would be greatly appreciated. So I, I listened to your call and I, I ran it past a, a, a doctor friend and he wasn't as alarmed or goobed out by it as I was. Okay. Um, that said, if this doctor made you feel uncomfortable, don't go see this doctor. You know, if your subjective mm-hmm. experience of this exchange was upsetting, if it made you feel, you know, ogled, if he was being sort of heavy breathy about it, yeah, there's you, you aren't obligated to go through with this appointment to to, to spare his feelings. You, know, you you haven't made a commitment to to pursuing treatment with this doctor just because you had this examination. It is weird that he asked you to take your shirt off. It's weird that he asked to see your dick and balls when that wasn't the issue. Maybe he felt he wanted to check the, the, the one thing where I thought, okay, maybe he wasn't just being an opportunistic creep was asking you to spread your sphincter open, which is common when you're checking for anal warts. It's not just a picture of a, you know, puckered hole that the doctor wants to see or needs to see, or not just your puckered hole. They do when you get checked for anal warts, spread your ass cheeks as wide as possible and spread your sphincter out to see if there are any internally or that can't be seen by looking at just the outside of your hole. But the whole thing just does seem very odd and strange to me and unnecessary. Uh, The doctor I spoke to said though, that there are no protocols yet for these kinds of examinations, you know, for all this telemedicine and yeah, that said, it made you uncomfortable. Go see a different doctor. Okay. Yeah, I just didn't know if I was being overly sensitive or if I should just go with my gut that something wasn't quite right about the exchange. You know, even if you were being overly sensitive, it was on the doctor to set you at ease. And whatever that doctor did, even if, every, even if you know, we hear from a million doctors that this is standard for a telemedicine STI check that, you know, he wanted to see the dick too in case there were something there that you hadn't spotted that he would spot, whatever. Even if all that is true, and I'm very dubious about whether that would all be true or not, his, I guess, laptop side manner was so discomforting that he didn't set you at ease. He didn't reassure you in any way that this stuff was, that he was asking you to do was necessary. And so even if it was necessary, he failed and fell down there. And you aren't obligated to see him. And it wasn't, he's not even the doctor that you wanted to see, not the doctor your boyfriend recommended to you, correct? Yeah, no, he wasn't. I mean, the only reason I was seeing him um, was just because I was a first time patient at this particular practice. And their protocol, because of COVID, was I would have to see the head of the practice before I could see another doctor that I wanted to see. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think he knew that. But before I even had a chance to say anything, you know, he sort of made a follow-up appointment and sort of made it clear that I was going to be having my subsequent follow-up for treatment with him since he had seen me over the video call. Well, you're not obligated to have your follow-up treatment with him or at his practice if he made you uncomfortable. You know, it it is one of those weird moments with, you know, the doctors have this authority and we have a hard time often saying no to a doctor who's making us uncomfortable. Uh, it would be better if you know doctors invited us to say no to them if they're doing something that makes us uncomfortable in the same way I encourage people to invite the no when you're asking someone out, which can make them feel uncomfortable. Um, and you know, if you're being asked out by someone who has no power over you, there's no authority there that you 
may feel, you know, this weird undertow about. And he failed to do those things for you. And if you want to stay at that practice because your boyfriend likes that other doctor, insist on seeing that other doctor. They can't compel you to see this one if indeed he's creeping on you somehow to treat you for a sexually transmitted infection because he wants to look up your butt again. And if even being at that practice makes you uncomfortable, go elsewhere and tell them why you're going elsewhere. Yeah, I think just to just having the video appointment on his end be like kind of outside on his back patio was a little disconcerting. And I think that kind of set things off on a weird tone. Mm-hmm. But yeah, definitely hear what you're saying. I'm I'm sorry. I'm sorry that you know you're doing the the correct and responsible thing, seeking treatment for an STI. It doesn't sound like you're racked by shame or guilt. And good for you. STIs are common, and they're not punishments for any infractions. And, and we should seek treatment for them. And I'm really sorry that in being the responsible person seeking treatment, not you know succumbing to shame, uh, you had this negative experience. I don't want to call it traumatizing. I don't want to round it up to traumatizing. Discomforting, I think is a word that maybe we should embrace more uh, than everybody just, you know, defaulting to trauma all the time. It it sounds really discomforting. Fuck this guy. Don't go see him. If he didn't set you at ease about, you know, a very personal examination, he failed as a doctor, even if he did everything quote unquote right. Mm -hmm. Everything else. Yeah. I mean, I, I, yeah, I mean, I appreciate you calling me because I have my appointment tomorrow. So you've kind of helped me firm on my decision to cancel and seek treatment elsewhere. Good. I, I'm glad. That's why I called. I, you know, I didn't want to just record an answer and you to get it five days later when the show goes out. So that's why I called. Okay. Thank you so much. I really appreciate You're it. You're welcome. Best to you and your boyfriend. Hey, Dan. I'm a 29-year-old male in Florida, and I am facing my first ever breakup. I'm about three weeks shy of our six-year anniversary, and... um through my own assholeness and him, like it's it's pretty done now at this point. I'm just kind of terrified. I don't really know what to do or how to feel. Even like I, I know I'm feeling scared. We're probably going to have to continue living with each other for a little while. But like I don't really know how to really formally accept that he's not going to be as big a part of my life. Getting out of a relationship is a little like coming out to family. You just have to force the words out. You stand there in front of your mother and you you consciously, you feel the, the gears grinding as you form the words, I'm gay, in your mouth and saying it out loud in front of your parents or your mom for the very first time. And it's sort of the same thing in a relationship when you need to end it. You stand there in front of your boyfriend, your spouse sometimes, your girlfriend, your envy friend, and you can feel the gears grind as you force yourself to say, I'm out or it's over or we're done. Uh, we need to end this relationship. I'm leaving you. Whatever it is that however you need to put it in that moment, like just it's a little bit like that coming out experience where you just feel like you're on fire as you push these words out, these words that can't be unsaid, something that can't be taken back, something that's going to change your relationship uh, in a significant way. Hopefully it'll improve your relationship with your family. Now they know you, but it's going to change your relationship with your boyfriend or your spouse, whoever it is that you're leaving when you force those words out. If you're going to have a friendship going forward, and hopefully you will, that's the moment that you can begin to work on it. 
since you two, caller, you guys are going to have to live together after you end the relationship. That's awkward. I've been there. I've done that. You give each other a lot of space. You treat each other with kindness and compassion. And you try to remember what it is you liked about that person. You remind yourself. You don't try. You actually actively remind yourself what it is you liked about that person in the first place that prompted you to engage with them emotionally and not just sexually and enter into a relationship with them. And you focus on that. You focus on the positive while at the same time withdrawing. Focusing on the positive just to make it tolerable to still be trapped in the same place. You you need to give each other as much space as possible. So, you know, if it wasn't COVID time, I would tell you to get out a lot, hang out with other friends, go do things, go to the gym, give each other physical space and distance. Maybe that's not possible, but you can go for walks. You can go for bike rides. You can take a book while it's still nice outside and go to the park and spend an evening reading and looking at your phone every other paragraph as I do now when I read. And the kinder you are in these moments, in this moment of transition while you're still trapped in the same place, the likely you are to have a friendship with your boyfriend. Maybe not right away, your ex-boyfriend. Maybe not right away. Maybe not even in a year, but down the road. And that's really what you want to be thinking about at this moment when you're ending it. You know, sometimes people think, okay, we're ending it. We really want to cauterize the wound. We'll say every vicious thing that we wanted to say and didn't say to each other. And that's just salting the earth. You're not going to be able to grow a friendship in that soil down the road. There are still things probably on the list of things that can't be unsaid that you may have been tempted to say that you're just not going to say. You're going to set those things aside and say the one thing. It's over. I'm out. I'm leaving you. Whatever it is that you want to say to him to, to, to end it officially, say that one thing that can't be unsaid. But it sucks and it's awkward and it's hard to be dumped and it's hard actually, and we don't talk about this very much, it's also hard to do the dumping, to inflict that kind of pain on someone that you did care about for a very long time. That can be very difficult, more difficult to have that pain inflicted on you by someone that you're still in love with, as is sometimes the case, but it's still hard to do what you're about to do. So take care of yourself too. Treat yourself with kindness and compassion too while at the same time treating this man that you once loved romantically and may one day love as a friend with as much kindness and compassion as you can muster. Hey there, what is the difference between sex addiction and a kink? I'm really interested in this. My husband watches cam girls and we're thinking it's a sex addiction, but I'm not sure if there is such a thing as that. Joining me by phone to help tackle this question, Dr. David Lay, clinical psychologist, sex therapist, and author of, among other books, The Myth of Sexual Addiction, which I think kind of tips your hand there, David Lay. Hey, Dr. Lay, how you doing? <laughs> hey, Dan. I'm great. How are you? Uh, good. I actually think before we even get to her question, we should talk about the difference between a kink and a fetish. And I'm not even sure that what we're talking about here is a kink. Dude's just watching some porn. That's not a kink, Right. Right. I mean, uh, um, kink and fetish, you know, kink is the uh, sort of a non-stigmatizing term that people use to describe some sexual desire that they feel like is not common or normal. Um, Fetish is the word we used to use when that that sexual desire was abnormal. 
um, which is different from not common, and that that sexual desire was not only abnormal but potentially unhealthy. Colloquially, also kink was used, or fetish was used to describe, uh, you know, a fetish for an object, like someone who's into latex right. or, um, you know, rubber hoods or high heels That's or right. smoking or balloons. That you know, it was a kink, but it was the fetish kind of specific kink. Yeah. Now, I live in New Mexico, where fetish is also a word that is used to describe, you know, Native American ceremonial objects. Mm-hmm. And that actually is from the origin of the word, because the, this this uh, this object, you know, takes on this very powerful, specific kind of additional meaning. The it, we stopped we clinically stopped using the word fetish um, uh, in mental health and diagnosis. We we started using the term paraphilia um, and the even that has changed recently because there was acknowledgement that that there were paraphilias, you know, for instance, people had an interest in, um, you know, their, their partner wearing boots that didn't cause a problem. And so now they created this other term called paraphilic disorder, where not only do you have this relatively fixed and stable, somewhat uncommon sexual desire, but it causes problems in your life. So not all paraphilias are disorders. So this is a class of paraphilias where it's causing trouble in your life. And the other thing I think is really interesting about paraphilias is, you you know, technically the definition of non-normative sexual desire, a paraphilia. Yeah. But most people have at least one. So actually being a paraphiliac is normal. It turns out that um, uh, about half of people have um, at least some sexual desire that we have historically considered abnormal. And it turn, you're right. It turns out that it's normal to have an abnormal sexual desire, which means everybody is abnormal. Everybody's abnormal. Now, let, now let's get to the, to the caller-specific question uh, about yeah. her husband. And she sounds so calm. Usually when people call me because they're upset about their husband's uh, watching cam girls, uh, yeah. that's what they're upset about, and they're usually pretty freaked out about it. They're not asking a kind of, you know, technical question about academic, yeah, academic yeah. question about like where the the, the difference between a sex addiction <laughs> and a kink. I think we can infer right. from the framing of it as an addiction that he watches maybe a lot, uh, and perhaps it's caused some problems in his relationship. Maybe he's claimed it's a kink to say I can't help it; it's just how I'm wired. But what is, if anything, the difference between a sex addiction and a kink? And then we will quickly move on to whether sex addiction is actually a thing. Well, so sex, using the term sex addiction is just code for um, I am struggling to control this desire. Mm -hmm. I have this desire and I don't want to have it. I would suspect that. You know, he is maybe saying to her, look, I'm watching these cam girls and I I almost feel like I can't stop. Or she catches him watching it after he has said he's not going to. And then he says, oh, well, it's an addiction. She's, you know, when when she maybe brings in this language, well, is it a kink? She's now inviting us to consider and him to consider, is this? you know, just kind of a part of him. Now, the that's the language that I really want to explore because what if what he's really experiencing is, hey, in my relationship, um, you know, there's not a lot of sexual novelty because we've been together a long time. And sometimes, you know, watching these girls stimulates me and I wish that wasn't the case. Mm-hmm. Um, when we use the language sex addiction, um, we start taking responsibility away from ourselves. 
I would say, especially from the academic kind of way she approached it, she might be willing to have a conversation about, look, um, sometimes I look at other people. That doesn't mean I don't love you and it doesn't mean I'm not attracted to you. Um, and it doesn't mean I'm going to go cheat on you. Um, can they start inviting that kind of conversation instead of trying to pathologize this desire? Mm -hmm. You know, I recently had Mark Maron on the show, a comedian, podcaster, actor, Mm -hmm. sex addiction came up and I, you know, asserted that there's really no such thing as sex addiction. There may be compulsive behavior, but he, you know, said he personally knows people who can't close the laptop. You know, they'd spend 12 to 16 hours literally uh, beating it bloody uh, and he, his mm-hmm. assertion was, if that's not an addiction to porn, what is, what would your response be? Uh, well, well, I would tell Mark, welcome to the wonderful world of obsessive compulsive disorder, because that is a problem, but it's not the porn. It's not the sex. Um, I see those people and, uh, consistently, uh, what we find with those kinds of people, um, is that they have obsessive compulsive disorder. This is an anxiety disorder. Um, now sometimes that also happens with methamphetamine. Um, there are folks who will, uh, you know, take meth and then they'll binge on porn and masturbation for 12, 15 hours. Um, in that situation, I think it's kind of foolish to blame the pornography. Um, instead, Let's start talking about the person because when we when we say this person can't close the laptop, um, we're we're kind of implicitly blaming the pornography instead of the person. I want to understand the person and what is different about them from all of the other people who can watch porn, masturbate, have an orgasm, and turn the laptop off. Can we talk briefly about the way the the term sex addiction has been weaponized by? I think religious people and sex phobic people, because it often gets slapped on anything that is not, you know, missionary position, heterosexual intercourse with your spouse in the dark, that if you have a, oh, hell, yeah. if you have a non-normative <laughs> sexual desire, you have a problem. That's a sex addiction. And sometimes people, you know, who have kinks or like to watch a little bit of porn and have been, you know, indoctrinated by religious mm-hmm. parents or, or teachers who are sex phobic will identify their own sexual interests that they're hardwired to experience again and again and again. And after that refractory period passes away, we'll kick back into gear. They will identify their own sexual interests, which are normative in their non-normality as sex addiction. How is this concept Um, harming people? How is it helpful? Well, um, some people will claim that um, having the label helps them understand um, that, you know, it's not that they're a bad person, but that this there's this kind of uh, desire that they just need to control. The problem is that the term sex addiction, when applied to yourself or when a clinician impl- um, applies it to you, is, is based on shame. It is a shaming desire that or a shaming label. And, you know, a friend of mine, Sam Perry, is a researcher, and he did this interesting analysis, and he showed that um, uh, amongst religious people, 40% of men who have never watched pornography identify that they are addicted to pornography. Now, these are people who are not watching pornography, but they feel addicted to it. There there are people who are, are, say, they're alcoholics who don't drink. Isn't it the same? Uh, well, it, it, but uh, uh, amongst non-religious people, 
people who do not watch pornography, less than like five or six percent identify as addicted to pornography. So it, it, it's not it's not that kind of dry alcoholic kind of thing. It is an indication that the and and all of the research is supportive of this that the I, identification as a porn or a sex addict is predicted not by your sexual behavior but by your religious conflict with your desires so basically what this means is these are people who have sexual desires that they have been taught make them a bad person um as you said you know the the uh, around kink and 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 the weaponization of these labels the sex addiction concept was born in the 1980s during the AIDS crisis, and it's not by accident that gay and bisexual men are at three times the risk of being called sex addict compared to anybody else, because the idea of sex addiction was in part a way to suppress homosexual behavior that was dangerous during uh, during the AIDS crisis. And gay and bi men tend to have more sex than straight men because they're having sex with other That's men. That's right. Straight men would do everything gay men do if straight men could, but straight men can't because women often won't for perfectly legitimate uh-huh. reasons. They might want to, but the risks are greater because yeah. men are violent and women have to factor that in, right? Those personal risks. Often it seems to me when I hear sex addiction thrown around as a label, what the person is saying is, I think you have too much sex or the sex that you're having or that you want to have if you're my spouse and I'm shaming you. The sex you're interested in having isn't the sex I'm interested in having. And since it's not missionary position in the dark with a spouse in the middle of the night, it's a problem. It's an addiction and you need to root it out or get cured or get fixed somehow. And then it'll solve the That's problem right. in our life, which is not, I'm not willing to indulge your foot fetish. It's that you have a foot fetish. Yeah, I need you to have an erotic actomy to remove this <laughs> sexual desire from your, your life, from your personality. Um, you know, the interesting thing is, I mean, the sex addiction field, they diagnosed, you know, interest in BDSM as being a sex addiction for about 20 years. And there there was one interesting thing that changed that, that made it where they stopped uh, diagnosing BDSM as kink and started identifying as potentially healthy. And it was the popularity of Fifty Shades of Grey. When that book sold 100 million copies, um, and 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 frankly, I believe a lot of these female sex addiction therapists read the book and got really turned on. Oh they then stopped <laughs> they seeing stopped. it as intrinsically unhealthy, right? Because because now it was about you know acknowledging and accepting this this dirty secret. So that, some, so some good um, came out of the Fifty Shades phenomenon then. It really did. I mean, yeah, I'm not a huge fan of the book or movie and it's got problems, but it forced us as a society to accept that the um, just because your sexual desires are not what I want them to be doesn't mean it's unhealthy. Okay, circling back to the caller really quick. Difference, you know, she's her husband watches cam girls. Uh, it's mm-hmm. not a sex addiction. It could be compulsive behavior if he spends all day watching cam girls and isn't bathing or eating or going to his job or and is neglecting you could be a compulsive behavior and you might want to talk to a mental health professional about treating that underlying compulsive uh, problem or LCD problem he might have but it's not necessarily a kink and if it's contained and he's not overdoing it he's not neglecting you it's not causing any real harm in the relationship or to his professional or personal life otherwise it's not an addiction or a problem yes and I think they can have some healthy conversations about sexuality, about desire, about interest or attraction in other people within their relationship. You know, I did this 
I did this uh, research with um, uh, Strip Chat. They're a, you know they're they're an online chat group, and we looked at you know what it's like you know the the people that fall in love with cam girls, and for many of them you know it's not necessarily about masturbation. It's not about sex, but it's about um, acceptance of them as a person. It's about connecting with this other person, and. What I'd be interested in this couple talking about is um, is that issue. You know, when when he says it's sex addiction, he's saying it's just about sex. But what if it's not? What if it's about other stuff? And can we as a relationship talk about that? Dr. David Lay, clinical psychologist, sex therapist, author of The Myth of Sexual Addiction. Thanks for jumping on the phone. Really appreciate it. My pleasure, Dan. Take care of yourself. Hey, Dan. Long-time listener here. Love you. So everything in my relationship is perfect and great and healthy. Love my boyfriend. Um, We've been together for about a year. I have been invited to a work party next week. It's going to be outside and we're all allowed to bring a plus one because, you know, we're, we're a pretty tight and small group and we're assuming all of our plus ones are people that we are either dating or living with. Um, so we're not really expanding the COVID circle. Yeah. So that being said, one of the girls that I work with is dating someone that I had a one night stand with a couple years ago. I'm assuming that since they're living together and dating and have been for a while, that he is going to be her plus one. And of course, my boyfriend is going to be my plus one. I am feeling kind of awkward about this and and not really sure how to proceed. Should I tell my boyfriend that I hooked up with him and that we are all going to be hanging out together next week? Or is it better if he doesn't know? Classic lose-lose scenario. Tell your boyfriend in advance there's going to be somebody at this party that you hooked up with once. And if your boyfriend is the classic off-the-shelf insecure straight guy kind of (laughs) guy who reacts to something like that negatively, if he's threatened by the fact that you've had previous boyfriends and other sexual experiences that didn't involve him, could ruin the party and make for an incredibly awkward, stressful evening for you both. But if you don't tell your boyfriend and he finds out later, well, then you withheld this information and he gets all angry at you for not telling him, not telling him the truth. Maybe he liked the guy and chatted with him, which he wouldn't have done if he'd known that the guy had fucked you once. But here's the thing. Tell your boyfriend, and if he's the insecure type, which I assume he is, or you wouldn't be calling with this question, and for sure the party's ruined. Don't tell him, and it's ruined if he finds out. Is he going to find out? Is the guy that you fucked discreet and kind? Have you had other interactions with him? Can you say something to him? Like, my boyfriend doesn't know, so like, don't blurt that out. Don't make any like dumb fucking jokes. And can you trust him? Of course, all of that reconnaissance you may have done with this guy that you hooked up with once who's dating a friend of yours will be held against you if your boyfriend should find out about it which is why this is a classic relationship lose lose i would if i were you err on the side of not telling your boyfriend that you hooked up with this guy once 
We are not obligated to disclose all of our past sexual encounters to the person we are with now. A relationship is not a deposition. It's not a corporate merger. You don't have to disclose everything. And what he doesn't know won't hurt him. So I wouldn't tell. And if he was the kind of insecure guy who would hold this against me or slut shame me for something like this, I would work on that concurrently. I would not tell him about this guy I fucked at the party and challenge him when it comes up that he you know, makes an issue of the fact that I have dated other people, that I've seen other people. I have, as he has, fucked other people. And I would make continuing on in the relationship contingent upon him doing little work in that area, him getting the fuck over whatever his hang-up is that prompted you to call me with this question. Hi, Dan. I'm a 25-year-old straight female living in Arizona. I wanted your opinion on a Facebook post that I saw. A friend of mine posted a screenshot of this woman's messages with a guy on Tinder. The guy had sent an unsolicited dick pic, and her response was that unless he paid her, she would send the screenshot of the messages to his family and or friends. He paid her $30 over Venmo, and that was it. Obviously, unsolicited dick pics are super shitty, and I fully support calling assholes out on their shit. That said, I feel like blackmailing people is a gray area, despite the unsolicited dick pic. But what do you think? There was a lesson he needed to learn, and it wasn't that expensive in the end. Your friend just demanded 30 bucks. She shouldn't have done that. She shouldn't blackmail some guy for being an asshole, threatened to really uh, weaponize his dick pic and commit a crime herself and violating revenge porn statutes by sending that pic to his parents or family or threatening to. But still, 30 bucks and then she deleted it? Two wrongs don't make a right. His infraction perhaps was greater and maybe he learned his lesson. So I will allow it. Hi, Dan. I'm a teacher who's about to go back to work and I'm in a very fortunate position to have super wonderful in-laws who are willing to take care of my toddler while I go back to work full time. They are super wonderful people and I love them a lot. And they're also very Christian. And we come from my immediate family is Jewish. And also we're raising our daughter to be somewhat not religious. So I'm wondering how I can very gently ask my mother-in-law to not put super Jesus-y stuff into my toddler while she is very graciously taking care of our kid because we cannot afford child care. I don't think you should have to ask your mother-in-law not to Jesus freak at your toddler. I think your spouse should have to ask their parents not to proselytize to your child out of respect for the fact that you are Jewish, out of respect for the fact that you aren't raising your child in any faith tradition at all, they should respect that. And most grandparents, in my experience, personal experience, will respect that if you're clear about it. But these sorts of heavy lifts with parents aren't the non-biological spouse's responsibility. This is your partner's responsibility to go to their mom or their dad and make this 
clear. You know, when you're the in-laws, when you're the son-in-law, daughter-in-law, mother-in-law, father-in-law, you want for, you know, the, the, the sake of the family, for the sake of your relationship with your kid to have as low conflict relationship with in-laws, mothers-in-law, fathers-in-law, daughters-in-law, sons-in-law as possible, which is why conversations that could result in blow-ups, conflict, are the responsibility of the kid of the person you need to have that conversation with or the son or daughter of the person then if it's the parent that needs to have that conversation that they have the conversation with. So you're right to make this request. You're not in a power position if you can't afford childcare and this is your only option. So you may have to endure a little Jesus freakery because you have no other choice. You have every right to make this request and your parents-in-law, your mom and dad-in-law should honor it. But your spouse needs to be the enforcer. Hi, Dan. I'm a 30-year-old, mostly heterosexual woman living in the Northeast. About a year and a half ago, my ex and I ended things, realizing we had different visions for our future. I was ready to move in together. He wasn't. I didn't want kids. He thought he might. I wanted to stay in the Northeast. He wasn't sure. And with his family, it always felt like he kept me at arm's length. So even though I was really deeply in love with him, breaking up felt like the right thing to do for both of us. Over the last eight or so months, we've begun speaking again in a friendly way, but he's really increased the contact and made some kind of grand gestures, especially in the last month or so. I finally confronted him last week, and he admitted that he's been wondering if breaking up was a mistake and that he has feelings for me. Some of our irreconcilable differences, wanting kids, where we live, were no longer problems, and he's had some realizations from therapy that helped him understand that we were in fact aligned on these topics. When I brought up some of the other hurdles we've had in the past, he surprised me by telling me he has a sizable inheritance from his grandparents, which turned out to be kind of a shocking amount of money, more than either of us could spend in a lifetime. The inheritance came with strict stipulations, including forbidding cohabitation and marriage before a specific age. He hadn't introduced me to his family because the inheritance was contentious and a serious relationship would bring a lot of scrutiny to us both. This has been a shock and I'm having trouble sorting out my feelings on the one hand the biggest things keeping us apart are no longer keeping us apart and knowing that we could have the life we imagine together is tempting on the other hand he was perhaps not a liar but he was intentionally deceptive with me for a long time money is a tough topic and a delicate thing to disclose but he didn't have to give me details he could have told me that there were these huge hurdles in our relationship and let me decide if I wanted to deal with them so I'm not sure how to move forward from this or even what I want. And how could I trust someone who left out this huge part of themselves and their life from our relationship for over a year and a half? How can I figure out if what I'm feeling is grief for the relationship that I feel like was stunted because of these huge huge information gaps or if there is a desire for us to try again? So Mr. Darcy is offering you what you wanted, commitment, kids, and a large inheritance too. And you are hesitant to take him up on that because he didn't tell you that he may be coming into this large amount of money back when you were dating. Can you understand why he might not have told you that? Why someone might not share that information with the person that they just met or are casually dating, particularly if it comes with weird-ass strings attached like no cohabitation before marriage? He may have been worried that anyone that he dated that he was interested in that he disclosed all of this information to might 
fall in love with him or convince themselves that they were in love with him or attempt to convince him that they were in love with him, not because of who he is and because of any interpersonal connection that had grown, but because they wanted the money. They wanted him for his money. And the way that you can control for that, if you have a lot of money or you're coming into a lot of money, is just leave that out. Date people and and don't bring that up. Money is powerful. Money is distorting. It, it can warp people. It can warp people's lives. And so I don't see malice here in this omission that he didn't tell you about this while you were dating. And so <laughs> I guess if I were in your shoes, I wouldn't hold the fact that somebody who now has millions of dollars didn't tell me he had millions of dollars at the beginning of the relationship. At the time when I fell in love with him, I didn't know that being in love with this person would set me up for life. I might appreciate that failure to disclose because then I could examine and scrutinize my own feelings and know for sure that they hadn't been polluted or influenced by greed. And so maybe instead of resenting him for not disclosing this one fact about himself, and hopefully it's the only thing that you didn't know, you could see it from a different angle and appreciate the fact that he withheld this from you and that you know because he withheld it from you that you are or were before he broke up with you in love with him and wanted to be with him. And you weren't in love with the idea of him because he was wealthy. So when you say, how can I trust him when he left this huge thing out. I would say if this was the only thing he left out, you should be able to understand why he would leave this thing out. And if there isn't a pattern here of deceit, if there aren't tons of other things that he's left out, then you should be able to get past this and marry the millionaire. Hi, Dan. I'm a 30-something-year-old gay male. I met this guy on a dating app and he looked familiar. His picture looked familiar of this guy I met a couple of years before, briefly at a club, but we lost contact. We never like hooked up or anything. We just kind of exchanged numbers. And I was really bummed that I never did get to meet him. And so when I saw this dude's picture on this dating app, I thought it was that guy. And when we started talking, uh, I asked him about it. Do you remember us meeting at this place? And he's like, Yes, I thought you looked familiar. Yeah, we had a lot of fun that night, blah, blah, blah. And I thought it was cool. Okay, so uh, we talk on the phone for a week, and then I finally go to see him. And when I go to see him in person, it's not that guy that I thought it was. And I was not sexually attracted to him at all. But I'm a nice guy, so I decided to stay and like uh, chat with him at his house for a while. And he thought I was going to stay over, but I did not want to stay over. So we watched the movie and then I told him, you know what? I, yeah, I think I'm going to go home. And he got kind of upset because I did kind of imply that I was going to stay over when we were talking on the phone. And he got kind of upset that I wanted to leave. And then on the way home, that's when I like finally had a chance to think about what just happened. And I'm like, he played me. He knew we never met. And then when I got there, he thought he was going to, I don't know, get me into staying or something because he kept the lights really low in his apartment. He wore a hat when I walked into his doorway. He had a hat on and it's at nighttime and he's in his house. So he was trying to play me the whole time. And I want to know, uh, would you call him back? 
to like tell him that you knew what he was trying to do. I wouldn't call him back and tell him that I knew he was trying to play me. And that was your question. What would I do? I wouldn't call him back. He knows that you're not into him. He knows that he was lying and misrepresenting himself and keeping the lights low and a hat on and hoping that if he lured you over to his place on false pretenses that you would feel pressured to just go through with it. That having sex with him would be easier and less awkward than doing what I'm so glad you did, which was getting up and leaving. If he called me, if he calls you and wants to meet up again or says something shitty to you about rejecting him, then you tell him why. He knows why. He knows why you got up and left. He knows he was being a deceitful shit and that's why you left. There's really no need for you to continue to engage with this guy at all. You know, to call him up and tell him what you know he knows and he knows you know. Wasted effort. Don't give this guy any more of your time or attention, even negative attention, unless he calls you back, unless he contacts you again, and then you can blow the fuck up at him. Hi, Dan. I have a question about dating opposite personality types. I'm a true extrovert and have found myself always attracted to introverts. I've had very little success with this, but once I was actually dumped for being too high energy. So... I recently started dating another highly introverted man, and I'm fearful that this may again constitute. Currently, right now, we are not participating in social activities and spend most of our time together at my home. But hopefully, one day, we will all have the opportunity to re-engage in the world. So, do you or your listeners have any advice for introvert-extrovert dating? I have some lived experience here that may be relevant. I am an introvert. I'm an introvert who has made a relationship work with an extrovert for 25 years now. And the key to the introvert-extrovert thing working, making it work for as long as it needs to work or you both want it to work, is for the introvert to be allowed to withdraw when the introvert needs to withdraw, for the introvert to not be controlling, for the extrovert to be allowed to go out and party with friends, not have to stay home with the introvert and for the introvert not to be dragged from club to club or social engagement to social engagement against the introvert's will. If the extrovert is forced to stay home, the extrovert will be resentful and grumpy. If the introvert is dragged along to events that overtax the introvert's tolerance for social engagement, the introvert will be grumpy the introvert will ruin the extrovert's time by being grumpy in the bar or the club or whatever it is at the house party because the expert will be self-conscious about how miserable the introvert is. So the solution here is to find that sweet spot where you're out in the world enough together that you have these experiences together. But if you want more and more, or there's something you want to go to that the introvert is really going to hate, you don't go together. You are allowed to go on your own and the introvert can stay home. And then you can come home and tell the introvert all about it. That's how you make that work. It won't work if the extrovert insists that the introvert become extroverted or the introvert insists that the extrovert become introverted. That won't work. Before we get to response calls, let's read some of your tweets. Kathy Josephson tweets, just heard the song Let Me Be There by Olivia Newton-John on the radio. The line that says, let me take you to that wonderland that only two can share made me laugh after listening to the Savage Lovecast. I know that more than two can share it at a time. Yep, but two can definitely share a wonderland, but there really is no wonderland as wonderful 
as double penetration. And that takes three. SJ tweets, I have four episodes of the Savage Love cast to catch up on. Yay. Shh. No one tell SJ that I read her tweet on this week's show. Let's let SA be surprised when she catches all the way up to this week's show and finds out I read her tweet. And finally, Intimacy Toolbox tweets, thanks for recommending ASECT in episode 720. That's the American Association of Sexuality Educators, Counselors, and Therapists. But Dan, if someone is looking for a kink-aware, friendly, or knowledgeable therapist, I might first refer them to the National Center for Sexual Freedom's Kink-Aware Professionals page, kapprofessionals.org. Also a very good resource, and their listings include more than just shrinks. If you're looking for a kinky or kink-friendly doctor, lawyer, contractor, check out the Kink-Aware Professionals listings via the National Center for Sexual Freedom's website, ncsffreedom.org. All right, if you want me to read your tweet on the show, possibly, be sure to include the hashtag SavageLoveCast. And now your response calls. Hey there, calling in a response to episode 720 about the mother who found her 18-year-old son's dirty BDSM drawings. Dan, I feel like you were really gentle and gracious educating this woman about BDSM and reassuring her that her son's not a sociopath. But I just feel like this was such a boundary violation, and I really question... Why any of this was necessary. This really strikes a chord with me personally because I grew up with really sex-negative, judgmental parents who found my shibari rope and some other toys and made me throw those things away. And I just question why did she open this notebook in her son's room if she wasn't snooping? I question why did she tell her ex-husband? Why did he need to know at all? Yeah, I just feel like she should have minded her own business and either kept her mouth shut or just talked to her son about it if she was feeling really anxious. This is for the caller in episode 720 who is struggling with her really loud sex noises. I loved your advice as always, Dan, but I'm surprised you didn't mention uh, using things like gags or having her partner cover her mouth with their hand if that's something she'd be into. Um, I know this is our solution when we are fucking at a family or friend's house or when we're camping and there's tents nearby and we don't want to be loud. Um, my partner covering my mouth with his hand, I find to be extra hot and it also kind of solves that problem. But um, there's plenty of things you could use to muffle the noise too, like a gag, um, as long as you do your research and you know know the safety going into it and have a way to communicate with your partner since the noise would be muffled. Um but I think that could be a really fun and sexy solution if that sounds like something you'd be into. So experiment with it and have fun. Hey, Dan. This is a comment in response to the woman in episode 720 who called about feeling weird and introspective after having anal sex with her partner for the first time. I'm wondering if she may have been experiencing a little bit of sub drop. Um, I know after having anal sex with my partner, who is amazing and uses lots of lube and common sense, I do still feel a little snuggly and vulnerable and sometimes a little bit weepy. Um, so maybe um, just asking her partner for a little bit of aftercare and more affection and cuddles that might uh, bring her back to a little bit of normalcy. <laughs> so enjoy and be snuggly after. And we're going to leave it there. 206-302-2064 is the number here at the Savage Lovecast. If you'd like to record a question or comment for a future show, give us a buzz, 206-302-2064. But better yet, better than calling, use the Voice Memo app on your phone to record your question and email it to us at 
voicemail at savagelovecast.com. We want to thank Dylan, Caroline, Melanie, and Miranda, and everyone else who subscribed to the Magnum Savage Lovecast this week. The Savage Lovecast Magnum, you can subscribe at savagelovecast.com. Twice as much show, no ads, more guests, more calls. Again, thank you, Dylan, Caroline, Melanie, and Miranda, and everybody else who subscribed this week. We've already started getting submissions for our new podcast. It's called Five Minute Fuck, and it's going to be a showcase for your dirty stories, all five minutes or less. We're looking for erotic fictional tales, sexy true stories, real sex, or whatever you think makes a great, dirty audio listen. Our favorite entries will be compiled into one great podcast series, and one lucky story will be animated and part of the 2021 Hump Film Festival program. Go to Five Minute, that's F-I-V-E-M-I-N, Fuck.com to learn more. And if you still haven't seen the 15th Annual Hump Film Festival that we showcased online last spring, we're bringing it back this fall. Go to humpfilmfest.com to get your tickets now. Follow me on Twitter at FakeDanSavage. Follow Dr. David Lay on Twitter at Dr. David Lay. The Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me and the tech savvy at Risky and Nancy. I'll be back at you next week in an installment of the Savage Lovecast. 